I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 6, 2015. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Sharon Kalenge, an ecologist at the University of Colorado. Dr. Kalenge is an advocate of using new genetic technologies to make slight modifications to plant genomes, which can increase yield, protect against disease, and reduce pesticide use. This is non-GMO month in some natural food stores, so stay tuned to hear an informed and expert take on the positive sides of some GM crops. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Anyone who's driven I-70 through Summit County recently has seen the ever-increasing extent of beetle kill. Insect pests and fungal diseases, many of them exotic imports, as well as climate change, pose a danger to all North American forests. In an analysis published last month in the journal Science, Stephen Strauss, a distinguished professor of forest biotechnology at Oregon State University, argues that current regulations on genetically engineered organisms hamper scientists' abilities to combat these problems. The authors argue that regulation should focus on the product, not the process, and consider need, urgency, and genetic similarity of modifications to those used in breeding. The forest health crisis we're facing makes it clear that regulations must change to consider catastrophic losses that could be mitigated by using advanced forest biotechnologies, including genetic engineering, Strauss said. The authors stress that they are not advocating for separate regulations for genetically engineered trees. Rather, they call for an approach that would give agencies the option to fast-track field research for products intended to address forest health problems or that use methods that modify natural genes and thus are comparable in scope to those of conventional breeding. Last week, NASA selected five finalists in the competition for the next space mission in the Discovery Program that provides up to half a billion dollars per mission. The candidates include two missions to Venus, a mission to an unusual metallic mass asteroid, and a mission to search for potentially hazardous near-Earth asteroids. The fifth mission, called Lucy, would be to fly to asteroids called Trojans that have orbits that lead and trail the planet Jupiter. The Lucy mission is proposed by a team led by Dr. Harold Levision at the Boulder Office of Southwest Research Institute. Each investigation team will receive $3 million to conduct concept design studies and analyses. After a detailed review and evaluation of the concept studies, NASA will make the final selections by September 2016 for continued development leading up to launch, possibly as early as the year 2020. Any selected mission will cost approximately $500 million, not including launch vehicle funding or the cost of post-launch operations. In a final event on the CU campus at the Henderson Museum, a Stone Age fair this Saturday. Try your hand at skills that were used by people of the Boulder Valley thousands of years ago for survival. These include flint napping demonstrations, at lateral throwing, fire starting, and more. You can also visit the new exhibit on the 13,000-year-old stone tools that were found in the shadow of the Flatirons. This event is suitable for kids of all ages and will take place at the museum on the CU campus next to the UMC, Saturday, October 10th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Also on the CU campus, if you're interested in ancient mechanics, check out the faculty talk titled The Antikythera Mechanism, an Ancient Greek Computer. 
This device is eponymously named after an island near Crete where it was discovered in 1900 in an ancient shipwreck. Amazingly, this device has tiny precision gear wheels, making it by far the oldest geared timepiece in the world. But what exactly is it? Professor John Stock describes what is now known about this ancient calculating device in videos, interviews, and sky simulations created on the new Fisk Planetarium Digital Dome. The show runs for an hour and a half on Thursday, October 8th, starting at 7 p.m. For more information, visit the Fisk website. filled with pickup trucks Got old Hank cranking way up now Got coolers in the back tailgates down There's a big fire burning but don't be alarmed It's just country boys and girls getting down on the farm You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett and coming up is an interview with Professor Sharon Kalenge of the University of Colorado here in Boulder. She discusses many little-known aspects of so-called genetically modified crops and some important ways in which they can actually protect the environment and our health. This is Beth Bennett on KGNU, and we are speaking with Sharon Kalenge, who's a landscape ecologist at the University of Colorado here in Boulder. And Sharon, let's start out by a general overview of what genetically modified organisms, we can just call them GMs or GEs, what they are, and I know they're made in a lot of different ways, but maybe just a broad, general kind of overview as to how they're made. Thanks, Beth. Yes, so genetically modified organisms are generally crop plants. Those are the most common ones that we're aware of. And as you know, we've been genetically modifying our crop plants for for thousands of years as we've selected the best varieties of corn or the best varieties of peas that we grow and select the ones that have the sweetest fruit or the, or the um, strongest stems, for example. And so humans have been genetically altering plants for a long time. But what's most controversial now is the use of molecular biology and the technology associated with that to actually insert genes from one organism in the laboratory into another organism. And so genetic engineering, or GE, typically refers to that laboratory method of inserting genes from one organism into another. Um, but it's important to consider that, I think, in the context of how we've genetically altered plants over our human history. Right. We have been doing that for thousands of years. And it seems that people today are really concerned about foreign DNA and maybe you have something to say on that because there's sure a lot of examples of foreign DNA scattered throughout genomes. So do you mean DNA from one organism that's in an organism that's totally different? Yeah, exactly, because you said that with okay. the current GE crops, what people do is they move a gene from one species to another, and I think maybe that's right. what's got people nervous about GE. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a whole range of activities that take place. So, for example... You could have a, a variety of rice that tolerates flooding really well. And so if you identify the gene that allows that plant to tolerate flooding, you could take that gene and insert it into another rice plant, and that maybe another variety that, that is particularly productive. And so that's genetic engineering, but you've gone, you've taken a gene from one rice variety and you've put it into another. 
Yeah. That's generally yeah. pretty acceptable to most people. It's when we start taking right uh, genes from one plant or even an animal or a bacterium and putting it into a relatively unrelated organism. So an example in in industrial agriculture is the use of, of Bt or Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a, a soil bacterium. So it's a naturally occurring bacterium that lives in the soil, but it produces a compound that's toxic to insects, particularly caterpillars. So one method of genetic engineering is to take the gene that codes for that toxin and put it into corn plants, and now you have a corn plant that can defend itself against caterpillars. And so that's called BT corn, and um, that's a genetically engineered product. And so what do you think about people who might raise the concern that that's a really dangerous thing to do, to put a foreign protein like that into a crop plant? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. So in the case of, of BT, that's one of the toxins that's allowable under the USDA Organic Act for organic farmers to spray on their field. So essentially, they take the, the ground-up bacteria, which have produced this toxin, and they spray it on their fields. And because it's a naturally occurring soil bacterium, and they're applying it to their fields, it's considered compliant under the Organic Act. Okay. So but it it's seems... the same toxin. In the case of genetic engineering, the specific gene that codes for that toxin is being inserted into a corn plant. So the corn is expressing that toxin rather than it being sprayed on the field, but it's the same chemical. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And it seems like it would be a lot better to have the corn express it because then there'd be a lot less of that BT protein out there in the environment potentially available for insects to become resistant to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's true because the corn that's genetically engineered can be planted in such a way so that there's there are... Um, fields or rows of corn that are the genetically engineered corn, and then there are, they, they typically plant, intentionally plant um, varieties that are not expressing the Bt toxin so that the caterpillars don't build up the resistance to that toxin. Oh, if it was okay. all Bt corn, right, then the selection pressure would be really great for yes. the caterpillars to develop resistance. So they yes. always maintain some areas that don't have the BT toxin expressed so that the caterpillars will not build up resistance to it so quickly. Okay, okay. And so this BT protein, uh, because that's been approved by the USDA for organic agriculture, that's probably not one that's of concern in the environment. But are there any um, what, what we might call selection genes that are introduced along with the gene that's desired, that is moved um, into a crop plant that would inhibit its transfer to closely related species, for instance? Well, I think if I understand your question, you're wondering if there are other genes that come along with the gene that you're inserting that might have unintended consequences. Is that the question? Uh, No, I'm asking if there are other genes that might be uh, moved along with that. Like, so, for instance, when I used to do genetic engineering a long time ago in the lab, we would put in antibiotic resistance genes so that we could select for the 
presence of the gene that we wanted to move. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there's any genes like that that are intentionally uh, co-expressed so that the, it would inhibit the, the movement of that GE um, portion, that piece of DNA, to keep it from um, maybe cross-pollinating a closely related plant? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think that's a good question. I think, you know, the, the molecular technology has gotten very precise, and so we're able to pinpoint the expression of, of particular genes pretty, pretty, um, in a pretty refined way. And I guess the, if I'm, if I'm understanding your question, in, in our human history, when we crossed certain varieties together, we were transferring genes that we didn't even know what they, what they, we, we didn't even know what their function was, um, that may have been um, connected to other genes. So maybe we were trying to um, increase a plant's height, and so we, we crossed a tall plant with a, a short plant. We got a taller plant, but that taller plant might have also had other genes associate, associated with it, with tallness that we didn't um, realize what the consequences were. Yeah, exactly. And some of those might do things like even decrease the yield, which we would yes. want to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and speaking so of... I think, I think one argument for the, the genetically engineered method is that we can be pretty precise about what gene we're transferring and what it's likely to express in that plant. Exactly, exactly. Um, so coming back to this issue of yield, I've been reading that GM crops increase yield fairly dramatically. And can you talk about that a little bit? Is that true across the board? Are there certain crops that it's more true of? Well, there's been a fair amount of research on a variety of systems looking at that question of how does genetic engineering affect yield of these crop plants. And a great study just came out at the end of last year that looked at all of the studies that have been published in this realm and selected the ones that they could really do a careful analysis of the, um, of the results. So, so rather than looking just at one study and saying, yes, it increases yield, or another study and saying, no, it doesn't, they looked at over 140 studies that all measured yield of genetically engineered and then, and then non-genetically engineered crops. And they were focusing on those crops that are most commonly engineered, so corn, soybean, cotton, those are the main crops. And what they found was about a 20% increase in yield in the genetically engineered varieties, primarily due to the, um, the reduction in pest loads. And so as you have fewer insects eating your crops, your, your, the plant has more energy to produce the fruit or oil that it's going to produce. And so the, the yield tends to go up as the um, pesticide pressure goes down. Or, sure. Sorry, the pest pressure goes down. Sure. And it seems to me that, in addition, the pesticide use would go down because, it's, as we talked about with the BT plants, it's more targeted. Yes, and, and that was an interesting finding of this, of this particular study was that pesticide use did go down across the board. It went down more for those insect-resistant insect varieties, so the BT corn, for example, where you're directly reducing the, the insects that are able to feed on the plant there are also the, the herbicide-resistant crops, like you, you commonly hear about Roundup Ready corn or Roundup Ready soybeans. 
There's also reduced pesticide use in those cases, but they are still using herbicide in those crops. Um, They're using a specific herbicide, Roundup, in most cases. So they're still having to spray herbicide, but they're able to use less of it than they would um, in the non-genetically engineered varieties. Right. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Beth Bennett, and I'm speaking with Sharon Kalenge about genetically modified organisms, particularly in agriculture. So, Sharon, let's continue that thought with the Roundup Ready plants, because I know there's been a lot of controversy about that particular crop, particularly, and I'm guessing that some of the objections come because people are um, concerned about a large corporation that is Monsanto being involved in both the crop production and the pesticide production. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that particular crop and some of the problems that might be inherent in that type of genetically modified food plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so the example of Roundup Ready crops and, and here in Boulder, most recently we had a very active public discussion about the use of Roundup Ready sugar beets on Boulder County open space land. And so it's true that um, Monsanto Corporation um, produces the Roundup Ready sugar beets and they also produce Roundup. And so what this crop is able to do is resist the herbicide um, Roundup so the weeds that grow in the field are killed by the spraying of Roundup, but the crop plants themselves are not killed by the spraying of Roundup. So you're still using herbicide. You're still using Roundup to spray these crops. So in, in one view, um, that's not acceptable because we're still using chemicals in the environment to grow our food. Um, another perspective is, well, those, that Roundup has been shown to be less toxic than the more conventional herbicides that have been used to control weeds in sugar beet fields. So if we think of it as kind of a bridge to the future where we might be um, able to move completely away from herbicides, then this is a step in the right direction. And my own personal view is um, is one that's been put forward by a, a couple of authors in California who advocate that we ought to use the techniques of organic farming and the technology of genetic engineering together to address many of these issues that we have in food production. So can we grow food organically but still use the tools of genetic engineering to create crops that are more drought-resistant or more insect-resistant but grow them using organic techniques? And I think that's a fantastic idea. There's so much genetic variation in naturally occurring plants. And is that true of these crop varieties that have been selected for thousands of years? Is there still a great deal of genetic variation in them? Well, that's a great question. It really depends on on which plant we're talking about and where the ancestors of those crop plants are and whether they're still... um, are individuals out there that we can draw that genetic variation from. So corn, for example, most people know, um, probably originated in the highlands of central Mexico. And so we need to go back to those original corn plants and get that genetic variation because we've reduced significantly through artificial selection the amount of genetic variation that exists. So that's one reason many people advocate for continued preservation of these wild landscapes that have these ancestors of crop plants, because if we need to go back and get some more 
um, drought-resistant genes or insect-resistant genes, we have the, the resource to do that if those plants are still available. And there are programs, aren't there, for preserving those seeds in laboratories around the world as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are, there's a big seed bank in um, Scandinavia that is basically an underground vault that contains um, seeds of as many plants as they can find that, that people have grown and wild relatives of those crop plants. So in terms of extending this technology across the globe to increase food production, what is your opinion on that? It seems like, you know, the biggest population growth is, of course, in the undeveloped world. Is it possible for them to get a hold of these genetically modified organisms? I've read very mixed reviews about acceptance and availability. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is, again, a situation where we have to try to separate the the corporate view or the corporate image of a large agribusiness corporation to the technology itself. So those don't necessarily have to be coupled, although they they often are. So it isn't um, it isn't always the case that it's a large corporation that produces a genetically engineered crop, but but most of the time it is, right, because those are the um, businesses that have the money to spend on research and development. But, but back to um, the authors I was referring to, Pam Ronald, who's a rice geneticist at UC Davis, has developed rice strains in her laboratory that she's giving free of charge to growers in Southeast Asia, for example. And so these are varieties that can tolerate flooding, and in those parts of the world with um, variation in climate, it's predicted that they're going to have more periods of time when, when rice paddies are, are severely flooded. And so there's a need to create rice varieties that can tolerate that. So what she's doing is developing those in her lab and then essentially through an open access model, giving that technology to the growers and people are adopting it. So in my view, that is a way forward is to say, let's develop this technology in a humanitarian sort of way to share with people who are in places where they need to grow crops on marginal lands, and that would be a way to um, increase their food production and not have the added burden of the cost or the sort of um, control of a large corporation. So it seems ideal to get some support from our government in terms of foreign aid to do the research to make these varieties available. Yes, that's a great point, because right now, universities have the intellectual power that typically don't have the financial resources to spend on the research and development of these varieties, whereas the private sector often does have the resources to invest. And so I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, this is really a, an issue about secure, food security, not only abroad, but in our own country as well. How can we increase available food and access to food of, of people across the globe. And, and this is one tool that we can use. I'm not saying it's the only tool. I think it's one tool that could be pretty effective. And we can just hope that that will keep happening. Well, thank you so much, Sharon. This has been Beth Bennett speaking with Sharon Kalenge about some aspects of genetically modified foods. Well, thank
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. She produced this week's show. It was engineered by me, Maeve Conran, with additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Tim McGraw. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Maeve Conran.